Episode 48, we could all use a mentor when it comes to using legal technology. My conversation with attorney mentor, Jay Ryan Payton. I'm Michael D. Eisenberg. I'm the Tech Savvy Lawyer, blogging at the techsavvylawyer.page and host of the techsavvylawyer.page podcast. In this podcast series, I'll be interviewing lawyers, judges, and others in the area of law to talk about where they see lawyers new and seasoned, taking advantage of technology in their legal work, and how all lawyers can utilize technology to better their practice, improve their services to their clients, and enhance their own lives. Ryan serves as the director of the Colorado Attorney Mentoring Program, a program of the Colorado Supreme Court. Ryan is a former litigator and a seasoned consultant and advocate on professionalism, diversity, and equity in the legal field. Ryan has been routinely recognized for their legal practice, earning the 2022 40 Under 40 Award, 19, the 2019 American Bar Association Rosner and Rosner Young Lawyer Professionalism Award, and the 2014 Colorado Bar Association's Outstanding Young Attorney of the Year Award. Enjoy. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate you being here. And to get things started, please tell us what is your current tech setup? So I am utilizing uh, Microsoft Surface Pro, and okay. uh, that's a, it's a pretty basic setup. I work for a state agency, so we don't have a big <laughs> tech budget. So that's about as good as I can get in terms of hardware. And then I, I utilize my Apple AirPod uh, for, for most of my Zooming calls. But you're, oh, for your audio, so you use the built-in camera with your Surface Pro? I sure do. And is this the newest Surface Pro or is it like an older version? It's definitely an older version. It's a couple of years old at this point. And how are you finding uh, using your Apple AirPod Pro with your Microsoft Surface? Is that integrating? Is that communicating nicely? For the most part, it integrates well. Every now and again, the connection will drop or it won't sustain itself. So I have to dial in with my iPhone, which I don't mind doing. But like I said, you know, working for a state agency, budgets are limited and our ability to bring in the kind of tech we would like is not always not always an option. So we try to piecemeal it together as best we can. Excellent. And do you have any other tech in your office? That's about it. I'm pretty mobile with just a laptop in, uh, in my iPhone. And, okay, so you use an iPhone. I do. And as, what uh, version, if I may ask? It's a 12. And well, I got to ask, what are your favorite apps on your iPhone? Uh, well, I listen to a lot of podcasts. So my podcast app is probably my most used app in addition to my health apps because I also have my Apple Watch. Yeah. I'm definitely okay. in the Apple cult. So everything yeah. talks to one another. So my health app tracks everything I do through my watch. And so I'm usually looking at that as well. Excellent. Excellent. And so you mentioned that you're in the Apple cults. Uh, that was your word, not mine. <laughs> yes. Are you going to the Mac conference this summer in Chicago or just outside of Chicago? I'm not planning to go to the Mac conference. No. Okay. The, it's the Mac stock conference, but it's more enthusiastic. It's not anything official. I'm going this summer. Uh, I went the, the summer just prior to COVID. It was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I met some very nice people there. It was, and also I got to watch uh, a live recording of the Mac Power Users 500th episode. Wow. Uh, I don't know if you listen to Mac Power Users. No. Oh, great podcast. Really enjoy it. Regardless of your level of Apple knowledge, it, I end up learning a lot. But, and it's free. So you can't complain about that. No, you can't. That's great. So, oh, and wait, do you use the Apple Podcast 
program or to use anything separate or different? Yep. That with the built in Apple podcast. I encourage you to take a look at Overcast. Okay. Uh, it's, it has a free version. It has a paid version. It's got some nice functions to it. I've, I've been using it for many years and really enjoy it, but that's just my two cents. But let's get into the meat and potatoes today. Let's start with the questions. As a mentor to attorneys, what three things are attorneys still not getting right with their technology and their practice? Well, it's not surprising, but I think the biggest thing they're not getting right is actually utilizing it at all. The legal profession, I think, still uh, lacks in terms of integrating technology, especially for making the process easier for clients. So uh, we work with lawyers a lot who haven't integrated any type of tech other than the basics, email, you know, whatnot to do their work. Uh, but haven't really thought about how to integrate technology in a way that makes their work with clients easier as well. So having software where clients can build their own accounts and have access to their files, have access to their billing, all of the things that we've come to expect when we're working with professionals. I know for a lot of folks who work you know, with doctors and medical professionals, we're used to being able to log in and pull everything up at our fingertips. And lawyers have been very slow to integrate that kind of technology into their own practice. And so I think that's it's a big missed opportunity for lawyers. Do you find it to be a, a generational thing or is it just lack of knowledge? I think it's actually the, the way that the legal profession is structured and the way that we have rules around confidentiality and, and file sharing and things like that. I think it hasn't necessarily uh, allowed lawyers to think innovatively of, mm-hmm. uh, on how to integrate that type of of technology. Some of it may be generational, but I see this with newer generation or younger lawyers as well, where the thought of giving the client full-blown access to their own materials is just not something that is part of the legal profession's culture. Right. Uh, and so it's going to take some time to, to make that culture change overall. Well, what programs would you recommend to give clients easier access to their client files then? Clio is a great program uh, that works for a lot of lawyers. It's, it's mm-hmm. affordable, it's intuitive, easy to use. Uh, it not only helps to create that client access portal, but also will be the software the lawyer also uses for billing and time management and mm-hmm. in case files. So it's, it's fully integrated in serves both the client and the lawyer. And I think it's probably at this point, one of the best technologies on the market. Can you recommend any third-party add-ons? Or separate programs where you can just do that, you know, without the integration into Clio? Not really off the top of my head. I know lawyers that have designed their own, who have had mm-hmm. who have built their own software platforms to be able to to do that. But you know, those folks obviously have a great interest in in making this accessible to clients and have, you know, a budget right, right. to do it that way. But I think for those looking just to kind of have the out of the box experience or, you know, pack and or plug and play kind of experience the Clio I think is is the best bang for your buck. Well, what else besides client access are you finding that attorneys are not utilizing uh, or integrating into their practice? I think a lot of process mapping type of technology. And that's a place, you know, even admittedly I am not all that savvy in, but a way to think through just how to manage caseloads, taking matters from initial consultations through mm-hmm. the entirety of the matter. Um, and having a process mapping and a system to help lawyers do that and to do that through technology. And I don't think actually the market has caught up with that because I don't necessarily see in the market different softwares or technologies that would allow that to happen uh, overall, at least with respect to to legal type of cases. And so I think that's a missed opportunity everywhere where we could really be helping lawyers 
streamline their processes in a way that would allow them to be more efficient with their time and serve their clients better overall. Well, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're talking about workflows in the sense of you trigger one thing and all these other things happen. I'm familiar with, of course, like programs like Zapier that allows programs that don't normally naturally talk to each other communicate and share information. You know, for instance, I use acuity scheduling for my practice. And when a person is implemented as a potential client, that information, their name, their address, their email is all sent from acuity to daylight. And daylight then pops it up and converts that into a potential client contact in daylight, which is a client relations management program. And I know there are other ways you can trigger things. You know, I could give a variety of examples right now, but that might take a long time. Uh, but are you, what is the hesitation, do you think, on that, on, you know, people wanting to develop workflows? Well, one of the unique aspects of, of lawyering is the need to run a conflicts check when you have a client mm. come, a potential client come through the door. And so there's a, an acutely human element that involves conflict checking uh, because you could just have AI kind of run through a database and see if there's names or things like that that would trigger a potential conflict, but you actually need that human uh, interaction with it to sort through and figure out, well, is it a conflict? Is, is it not a conflict uh, just because names match up or certain elements of the case match up? And so I think partly that may be why we haven't seen great technology on the market in this regard, because at some point that workflow has to stop when ha- and have a human come in and actually look through and, and run that conflict check for the lawyer. But I think in any technology, you still always have to have a, a human check on it because otherwise, um, you know, computers are not perfect as we, you know, sometimes learn the hard way. Absolutely. So we talked about like how Clio is great to bring on a client's onboarding. We talked about uh, process mapping and we talked about conflicts check. So actually, that is our three for that, unless there's one more you want to add. No, I think that would be the three. Although now that I say that, maybe the last one, and and I think this is getting better, but really about document management and Mm -hmm. the technology around this has really improved over the last uh, certainly five or six years. And because I don't practice in large firms where this document management technology is happening, I don't have personal experience with it, but I've seen it be very effective for, for lawyers who work in the types of practice or litigation where there is a lot of documents that need to be reviewed as part of the matter, the technology around that has just grown exponentially and been very helpful. And I think that, unfortunately, still some lawyers are slow to incorporate that into their practices. Again, wanting that human element, that hands-on, I have to do it all myself to make sure that I'm meeting my ethical obligations as a lawyer. So if we've talked about integrating technology in their practice, are there two other things that attorneys are still not getting right with their technology in their practice? Not getting right. I see a lot of lawyers who just don't utilize technology in a way that makes their lives easier. In some ways, it makes their lives more complicated. And again, I think there's some nuance to lawyering where we have this idea that we have to do it all ourselves. We can't rely on technology. We can't rely on certain elements of AI. For instance, I have lawyers who just now are starting to utilize things like Calendly because they weren't even willing to let go of their calendar enough to give people access, you know, for 30-minute Zoom calls. And and so that type of thing has been really slow to take off in the profession. I use Calendly for the blog and I use Acuity Scheduling uh, for the firm. And it just saves so much time and not the back and forth 
of having to deal with, you know, does this time work? No, this time doesn't work. Oh, wait, I got the wrong time zone, but I need 30 Mm -hmm. minutes, not 15. That can just go on and on and on. All right. Well, so making their life easier. What else? Is there is there a third? I think that for lawyers who have been in solo practice for a long Mm -hmm. time, I think that they are missing opportunities to utilize technology to scale what they're doing. Mm -hmm. We work with a lot of solo lawyers who just are a little bit nervous about that scalability. They want to take on more work. They want to expand what they're doing, but they're afraid of, you know, implementing some of the technology that would allow them to do that. Whether that's bringing on, you know, virtual assistants, bringing, working with contractors in a virtual way and utilizing even practical items like Slack or Teams or things like that to manage and organize people, even though they could see the benefit of the scalability in that, it freaks them out too much. Because again, the profession being as traditional as it is, there's something about if the person's not in front of you, if, the per- if it's not something tangible, if you can't work with that person directly, uh, how can you effectively uh, manage them, make sure that they're doing their work uh, correctly? Which again, comes back to a lot of the ethical rules that we have as lawyers. I think it almost painted us into a corner in terms of how we can utilize technology to, to scale and to be innovative in these ways. Well, you know, I'm wondering, are you seeing these concerns uh, mostly with brick and mortar uh, office attorneys uh, versus, say, virtual attorneys? At least in Colorado, the number of brick and mortar attorneys far surpasses the number of virtual attorneys. Even Mm -hmm. through COVID, when everybody went virtual for for a while, many lawyers quickly went back to the brick and mortar because operating from a virtual standpoint was just not something that they were comfortable with long term. And so, yes, that's the long answer is yes, it is more from the brick and mortar. But when you look at the scope of the legal profession in Colorado, it's still pretty much brick and mortar. Yeah, I, I've been running a virtual practice for 16 years. You know, my office is now down DC, but I've been working mostly from my home, my home office. And when COVID hit, I was able to kind of keep things going for the most part. There was not much of an interruption with my practice, which was nice. And Although most people are going back to brick and mortar, I've read several reports where there is a small but noticeable sized contingent of attorneys wanting to practice more from their home office because they're realizing the benefits of not having to waste that time going in and out of the office. That, you know, when you need to meet with your clients, if you can't do it by phone or by Zoom, then you have that occasional trip, you know, downtown into their office. Plus, you know, for me, my practice is international. I literally represent veterans, not only across the United States, but also uh, in other countries. So most, I can say most, but like a lot of my clients are just more comfortable talking on the phone than even doing a a Zoom call. And so all of my consults and I think all of my meetings have been done by phone and, you know, it still works. You know, you got a great long distance unlimited plan and you're set to go. So good. And I think the clients want that too. I mean, that's what we've seen as well post-COVID is clients are very happy to not have to go downtown to right. meet with a lawyer. Uh, they're, they're ha- it's more comfortable to do it from their home or to do it by phone or by Zoom. And so at some point, the profession is going to have to meet the need of the clients who are saying, we just we don't care about your mahogany filled you know, office downtown. We, right. we just want access to you. And by doing that, it makes things cheaper for the client. Absolutely. Yeah. It serves everybody. Absolutely. Well, you know, the, the VA had just started a, a program of virtual hearings where, you know, basically the veteran is at his or her home. The administrative judge is either at uh, their chambers downtown 
or working from their home office. And, you know, I'm in my office and it just saves a lot of time. And they've been able to do, I think been, they've been able to do more uh, and be a little bit more efficient in doing this. So they're getting a lot more done and they're done, being done quicker, which has been fantastic, especially since they have a huge backlog. And for the most part, I think most of the veterans have been very comfortable with it. You know, you just have to give them some some suggestions about, well, you know, dress nice, look what's behind you, and make sure you have any interruptions. But I think you were going to say something. Well, I was just going to say that I think it's actually the judges that are going to partly determine where the profession goes with respect to Mm -hmm. how virtual we can be. In Colorado, we have seen a generational shift where the younger judges are very happy to continue on Mm -hmm. with virtual hearings. It works well for them, whereas the more senior judges or veteran judges want to go back to person uh, because it's hard for them to judge credibility and other things over Zoom. And so they, they want to go back to those in-person hearings. And because those, you know, they are the arbiters of our profession, I think they will ultimately determine how, how much longer we can operate this way or, or, or how we grow with respect to virtual lawyering. Well, you know, it's funny you talked about credibility. There's an article I posted on the blog, I think a year ago, and I want to say it came out of Colorado, although I could be wrong, where the judge realized it was a domestic abuse situation. The judge realized that although there was a no contact order, the the spouse or significant other was in the other room or just down the hall, you know, at the same, they were both at the same virtual hearing. And the judge realized that they were actually in the same room, which Technically, he was not allowed to be, and she was apparently looking very intimidated that the the judge, I think, ended up calling the cops and having him arrested for violating the order, amongst other things. So I wonder how something like that would play into judges' concerns regarding credibility. Yeah, I think it's a big concern. You don't know what's happening. And I remember that case, and I'm not sure if it was Colorado or not, but I think it was the prosecutor or someone else, too, was picking up on the one of the parties sort of anxiety about right, what was happening yeah. in the room and she was looking in different places. And so I think that's a, that's a huge consideration is that how do we ensure that justice is done? How do we ensure that we're keeping people safe uh, when we're not giving them the access to the courts? And it brings up, I think, a broader issue of access to justice overall and how technology plays into our ability to, to meet the access to justice needs uh, in our country in how we're going to move forward in that regard, especially in states like Colorado, which mm-hmm. do have a great sort of urban-rural divide. We're very Denver-centric. Right. And there's a lot of conversation about how we can utilize technology to meet the needs of folks outside of the metro area in a way we haven't done in the past. And the best thing is, we're going to get into that in just a second, because that deals with question number two. But before we go there, I want to sort of just flip the whole discussion on the article we had, because I had read today that one of the jurors in the Amber Heard uh, Johnny Depp trial said that the problem they had with Amber Heard was her demeanor, how mm-hmm. she kept looking like she'd answer the, the question would be asked and her she turned to the jury and just stare at them kind of like and then t- like, I don't know how that kind of credibility check could be done on a Zoom trial because the witness is always going to be staring at the camera and not necessarily, quote unquote, playing up to the jury. Exactly. And I don't know how you even would do a jury trial on Zoom and ensure that the jurors were, you know, that they were the only ones in the room that, you know, someone else wasn't watching. I think it breaks down at that point. There's just no way to do it. But from a credibility perspective, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, in traditional litigation, we typically will coach 
witnesses not to do what Amber Heard mm-hmm. was doing, which is to stare down the jury in a very awkward way. But yeah, when you have this uh, sort of uh, one-on-one situation where you are looking at each other and even looking at yourselves, I mean, just from a human, that's what I think is so interesting is that just from a human brain development, we were never meant to stare at ourselves for eight hours a day on a computer screen. And of course, you can hide self-view and things like that, but most people don't because they want to make sure that they look okay on screen. And so, you know, you're really looking at yourself then and testifying to yourself and how that changes even the way that you come across in terms of credibility or how comfortable you feel. It would be, I think about if you were to put a mirror up in a courtroom and you know a witness was testifying and could see themselves in a mirror, how that would even change the way that they approach that. Well, that might have been what Amber Heard's attorneys needed to do with her, but yeah, that's a, di- yeah. That's give, a her, give her something else to look at. <laughs> that's a different story. But let's move on to the second question. What are three ways technology allow attorneys help those who typically can't afford or have access to private attorneys? This is where I think we're making a lot of great momentum. And and I think COVID is partly to thank for that. I think the first way is utilizing AI to help clients do more for themselves, honestly. Here in Colorado, we have a great great innovation lab at the University of Denver that is focusing on building out different types of AI uh, to help clients navigate the legal system. And so some of the things that they've come up with are different AI that help clients go through form, you know, filling out forms more appropriately. They figured out that in in domestic relations cases, people's petitions were getting kicked out because the caption wasn't correct. And so building AI to help people fill out the caption. So I think that utilizing that kind of technology can really help clients do more for themselves, which is helpful for lawyers because really lawyers with our specialized knowledge should be Mm -hmm. helping clients who can't help themselves where our specialized knowledge is really beneficial. And so we don't necessarily have to be filling out forms for clients in the way that many of us do. And so to utilize that technology to help clients do the things that they can do on their own, I think helps everybody at the end of the day. Well, let me ask you, if you will, about a, a conflict I see. So you talk about attorneys wanting to grow and expand their practice. And then at the same time, we want to have more of a DIY do-it-yourself for the clients that, you know, there are companies like, for instance, Hello Divorce, that mm-hmm. is an online platform that allows you basically to kind of do your own divorce process. And, you know, if you more, need more help from an attorney, you can, you know, pay a little more kind of bit. And there was a DIY process in New York State. I think it was New York State where the company who wasn't an attorney was providing uh, legal information regarding uh, how to deal with it was either foreclosures or evictions. And the bar came after them. And then ultimately it was found that, well, they're only providing information. And because of that, they have a First Amendment right. But I wonder if that answer would have changed at all if it was an attorney's office doing that. And I know Florida has been coming down on some of this DIY. I've been trying to come down on some of this DIY. But I, so how do you how do you balance that out? Because there's you know you have your you're trying to grow your business, you're trying to be a good attorney, and also you're worried about your ethics uh, conflicts. Yeah, I think we need to figure out exactly what we're trying to regulate in that regard. Uh, you know, in Colorado, we've had a lot of conversations about actually expanding the types of people who can provide that type of service to mm-hmm. clients. And so one of the things that we're doing is building out a program 
for limited license legal technicians. So think about a physician's assistant in the medical world, something similar in the legal world. We're saying, you know, lawyers are great. Again, they have the specialized knowledge. They should be growing their practices in ways that utilize that specialized knowledge. And there should be more affordable uh, opportunities for clients to get service from folks who don't have that specialized knowledge, but have enough knowledge to help them navigate what is a really cumbersome system. And so uh, to me, that's, that's really the question is, what are we regulating? Are we trying to keep other people from, for other professionals from delivering services within the legal system? Is that what we're regulating? Are we making, are we trying to make sure that clients are not uh, working, you know, the, are we are we regulating the unauthorized practice of law? Essentially, is that what mm. we're trying to do? But I think for me, it's been a little bit wishy-washy as to what problem we're preventing or solving or regulating in all of this back and forth. Because I personally think uh, platforms like Hello Divorce and other DIY services mm. are are greatly needed. It's an access to justice issue, and if we can put a little bit of regulation on that to make sure clients are protected, then by all means, we should. But I think a lot of lawyers are really threatened by the thought of non-lawyers being able to provide those services. And so it kind of becomes a tail wagging the dog. Who is actually directing this backlash on those platforms, on those services? My hunch is it's lawyers who are afraid of losing a market share, but a market share that's not actually really profitable or sustainable for them. Because again, I think that lawyers should be utilizing their specialized knowledge to do that type of, of complex work and leaving the other stuff to folks who, who could fill that gap at a, at a lower rate or in a different way uh, to provide that access to justice. I think the problem is, is you mentioned things are sort of in a wishy-washy type of state. And the problem is attorneys you know, are a little bit hesitant because they don't want to deal with a bar complaint or multiple bar complaints, if you will. So that was one. Two others? So I think the next one is uh, utilizing technology, again, to help clients figure out and identify what their legal problem is. Because I think with access to justice, one of the, one of the biggest issues that comes up is the fact that a lot of people don't know that they actually have a legal problem or they don't know what their legal problem is. And so that either that keeps them from hiring a lawyer or going to talk to a lawyer because they've misidentified the issue. And so utilizing technology to help clients to identify that issue ultimately obviously helps clients, but also helps lawyers. Because if through that AI system, that client has figured out, okay, what I need here is a bankruptcy lawyer. By the time they call that bankruptcy lawyer, they're pretty well-versed in what their issue is. And that lawyer can help them and get to work right away rather than having to sort through all of the potential issues and then maybe refer them out because it wasn't a good fit. And it was sort of a waste of everybody's time. And so Again, there are, there's AI being built right now that is helping clients kind of navigate through issue spotting to determine what is the appropriate next step in their case, which I think is really beneficial. You know, I'm kind of contemplating that in my mind because my day job, I mostly represent veterans before the VA. Mm-hmm. And that is a fairly, I, don't, I want to say in my mind, obvious clientele. But I do get the oddball questions every now and then. But I guess in my mind that the average person still, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. It just seems like that, you know, hey, I'm swimming in debt. I may need to file for bankruptcy. I mean, would they not know to lead to that question by asking themselves? 
I mean, maybe it starts with they haven't paid their rent and so they get an eviction notice. And so what they really think they need is a a landlord-tenant lawyer, which they might. But Mm. in sorting through all of the issues, they may also realize, oh, actually, it is a debt issue and bankruptcy would help as well. And so I think that's kind of what I'm talking about is that they may think they have one issue, but actually there's other issues or different issues. In what we see, especially out in the rural communities where mm-hmm. there aren't a lot of lawyers for folks to just pop into and consult with, uh, they may not even realize they have a legal issue at all. And that's, I think, really hard for some lawyers to understand, again, because of our specialized knowledge and, again, because of some of the privilege we have in just having you know, education and, and things like that. There are folks who get that eviction notice and don't realize they have a legal problem. They just move out or they get debt collection notice and they just ignore it. And so uh, when we can help people identify where there are legal issues and legal issues that could be resolved for them, I think it ultimately serves everybody. But I guess what I'm having a trouble with is if they don't recognize they have a legal uh, situation to begin with, what would prompt them to start looking, whether it's an AI or contacting an attorney or contacting the wrong attorney? Yeah, I think that's where then it's utilizing this AI or this technology to help I see it sort of like as concentric circles where the legal profession and lawyers are just one circle in a whole line of circles that these individuals are interacting with. So it's more of a societal type of thing where we need to be educating people. We need to be educating, you know, medical professionals and social workers. And if you think about a smaller town, you know, who are the players in that smaller town? So where are they going to go uh, to, to ask questions about these, these problems, the, the local leadership? Uh, They may even walk into the courthouse and say, I don't know what I'm looking for, but I know I need something. And so making sure that we're, we as as legal professionals are trying to utilize as much of this technology as possible to kind of bring those folks together so that wherever people are going to ask these questions or having these conversations, someone else can say, Hey, that, you know, you may need a lawyer for that. Here's, you know, a great program you can kind of run through to to check that out. And I think my question goes to, well, and I think you might've answered it earlier on that, you know, what is going to get the person to actually make that first step, whether it's contacting an AI program or contacting an attorney. And I think you mentioned education. Yeah. That being said, how do you propose to educate those, you know, whether it be in the rural areas or others who just wouldn't naturally think of, well, hey, I need an attorney or maybe I need an attorney? Well, what we've been doing out here in Colorado is utilizing local libraries. And Mm -hmm. also in every judicial district in Colorado, we have what are called self-help representatives, which are folks who are in the courthouse and their job Mm -hmm. is to direct folks who are currently self-represented into access, you know, resource access. And so those folks all work together to try to build up sort of a community education base. It's not technology. It's more, I think of it as social work, but a community-based sort of education initiative to help people know that this exists and that this is a resource to them uh, should issues arise for them. Well, excellent. That's two. So let's go on. What's your third answer? So my third answer is utilizing technology to connect lawyers directly to clients who are in need of a pro bono service. And so one of the things that we've noticed in our state is that when a lawyer wants to take on pro bono cases, it's actually really hard to find ways to plug into that. And I see your reaction to that. And, and I had the same reaction. What do you mean? There, all I hear all the time is how much need there is for pro bono. And of course, we hear about the need so much. 
But in practicality, at least in Colorado, if you want to go take on a pro bono case, it's going to take a lot of time actually for you to figure out how to do that because there are so many legal service providers. You have to, you know, call, you have to email. Uh, there's no sort of streamlined way to get engaged very quickly in pro bono. And so what happens is that a lot of people give up. Uh, they start working, you know, they, they'll go to one website, they'll send an inquiry email to say, hey, I'm willing to volunteer. Maybe they hear something back, maybe they don't. They have to make phone calls, uh, websites get out of date, all of that type of thing happens. And so eventually they just kind of give up because it's taking too much time to find a pro bono opportunity. And so one thing we've done here is actually build out pro bono pipeline where uh, think of it as, I well, I kind of describe it as match.com for lawyers looking for pro bono opportunities. So we actually did initially build our own platform and have since partnered with um, with Paladin, which is a legal tech uh, company that is focused on access to justice, uh, to have a website where lawyers who are looking for pro bono opportunities can go to the website, they can review different pro bono opportunities. They can search based on their own criteria, whatever they're looking for. They find the opportunity and with one click, they can connect directly to that opportunity and start engaging with it. So it really takes out all of that middleman work and that and allows that connection to happen. And that's been really helpful in Colorado to get more lawyers engaging in pro bono and getting those uh, legal service providers to post their opportunities and to engage directly with the lawyers from there so that we're not, you're not having to chase down pro bono opportunities. Well, let me piggyback on that a little bit with, I think most, I'll say most of the courts that I'm a member of, there's a bunch of federal courts I'm a member of, and of course, the local DC uh, court, I check the box of, you know, willing to volunteer or willing to do pro bono work. And, you know, I get assigned a case every couple, several years. And I just finished one where the client had no, she had no technology. She had no access technology. Mm -hmm. And my practice is really based on utilizing technology, especially email and PDFs and OCRing documents and communicating that way with the client back and forth because it makes things much more efficient than having to use snail mail and worrying about whether the USPS is working on time and whatnot. And But I made it work. We talked on the phone when appropriate. I would mail her stuff and she'd mail me stuff back. What kind of hurdle are you seeing? Um, the pro bono clients having when they just don't have or can't afford access to the technology that you know some attorneys are relying on, at least at very minimum, like email. Yeah. So in Colorado, we have a huge broadband issue. And that's mm-hmm. been uh, something that we as a, a legal community have been talking about for a long time is how can we improve access to broadband? Because, um, you know, forget about just savviness with things like Adobe and and whatever. If people right. don't have the access to basic broadband to be able to email or to Zoom with a with a lawyer, that's that's an access to justice issue. And so we definitely see those hurdles and know that uh, before we can even start talking about specific technology, we just have to get access to the broadband to run the technology first and foremost to a lot of these areas. But what uh, we've also seen in a lot of communities that are lacking that access to broadband or a lot of communities where folks aren't quite as savvy with things like Zoom or Adobe or email or things like that is seeing these self-help representatives really walk and create uh, spaces where people can access that technology with assistance. And so uh, we've seen these self-help representatives go into local libraries and host all day, uh, essentially clinics 
uh, if you will. They're not technically legal clinics because we're not saying come here and we'll connect you with a lawyer. It's a place for people who have already retained lawyers or are working with lawyers to have a space to have access okay. uh, to the broadband and also then to have support in utilizing the technology. So they will help you get on Zoom. Uh, if you don't know how to do that or don't have your own Zoom account, or they'll help you access emails or client files or Dropbox or whatever it is. And that's been really effective. And of course, you know, that that has a scalability issue. There's only so many self-help representatives and there's only so much library time you can have, but that's been a way to overcome some of those hurdles. Excellent. And thank you for sharing that. I, I really do appreciate that. And I know that access to justice is a huge issue that we're all trying to solve. And you know, unfortunately, a big component of that has got to be getting broadband to everyone. But if they can get broadband over in Ukraine, then I would think that we could do it here too. You would hope so. Well, let's move on to the third question. And the third question I think we're going to have a little fun with. So during COVID, technology has allowed more attorneys to work from home. With this new dynamic, some attorneys have been lacking in being professional. What are three things attorneys need to be mindful when using their tech while working remotely? So it's a great question. And I actually think it's a really complex question because when I hear that question, a lot of things come to mind specifically around how we define professionalism and civility as a profession. And I know that's not what we're here to talk about, but I feel like we have to at least acknowledge that to some extent, uh, our profession bases what is deemed professional on really kind of white Western notions of what professional is. And I think what COVID did for the profession that was really great was to really humanize all of us. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think pre-COVID, it was very easy to dehumanize lawyers because we were robots, we were hired guns, bulldogs, whatever, whatever it was. And so suddenly when you could start to see into people's homes and see, you know, the things behind them and really what their interests are and to see their kids and their pets and things like that, we suddenly became human beings again, which I think overall had a huge impact on the civility in our profession, because it's a lot harder to be a jerk to somebody when you can see, you know, behind them that, oh, actually, we both really enjoy, uh, you know, Tom Petty, you know, whatever it is. So you find those connections. And I think that really does help civility. So I just want to make those global comments. When it comes to utilizing technology and, and how to sort of maintain professionalism, I think certainly the low-hanging fruit is to always, you know, be presenting yourself in the way that you would be presenting yourself anywhere else and in making sure that you're at least present and attentive. I think that's the biggest thing for me. I don't mind, you know, seeing someone's pet behind them or I don't mind if they're showing up in a hoodie in a hat for a meeting. But if they're doing 14,000 things, which I think is really easy to do on Zoom and, you know, they're checking email or they're watching the news or they're all over the place, that I think is a level of professionalism that everybody can expect and and should expect when you when you're engaging with someone uh, remotely in this way. So I think that's a big one. I think the other is again kind of, you know, maintaining that that humanity even across uh, Zoom because I I think in the as we're sort of moving out of the pandemic, one of the things I've seen is people I think finding some distance in the Zoom world. So one example is, you know, if you're sitting across the table with someone um, and having a meeting uh, you're not necessarily going to raise your voice maybe or, or pound on the table or do things that may feel a little you know, threatening or overbearing. But I have found that when people have the distance of, of Zoom or that remoteness, it doesn't matter how loud I get or how much I pound the table here. 
it's not quite as threatening to you, but again, it comes off with an air of unprofessionalism, I think, but it becomes a little easier because we're in this, this box and in our own space to do that. So the last thing that I would say is not overriding the silence. And here's what I mean by that. So when you go out and you have coffee or you have lunch with somebody and you're engaging in dialogue, there are a lot of organic opportunities for just sort of that silent moment. You're taking a bite, you take a sip of coffee, and it really allows, I think, the conversation to be more organic, more natural, gives you time to collect your thoughts, to think about how you want to respond. What I have found uh, in the remote world sometimes is that because we're not always eating, drinking, having those organic pause moments, that's really easy to steamroll through those organic opportunities to just have a take a breath, collect your thoughts, think about how you want to respond. And so sometimes I think people have this, you know, word vomit that they wouldn't otherwise have because there's no natural opportunity uh, to have that pause. And so I think that also goes to professionalism because uh, we're going to take that breath, you know, in court, we're going to take that uh, drink of coffee in a meeting, and it's going to give us a chance to maybe edit (laughs) before we speak. And so I think giving yourself that uh, grace and that opportunity to have that moment to edit is really important, even though in these dynamics, it can feel like we just have to keep talking and fill the space. And that's typically why I have to edit my own podcasts, because (laughs) sometimes I keep talking, yet I need to just basically stop because that whole awkward silence is always, you don't want it. You want to make sure you're filling in every moment. And of course, we forget, I think there was a study done like years ago that Roughly on average, every seven minutes, there will be a pause in a conversation, whether it's one-on-one or in a group. And then it's just natural because all of our brains just need a minute to think and catch up and assess and figure out where to go from there. Ryan, excellent. I appreciate you joining us today. Where can people find you? So people can find me at www.coloradomentoring.org. That's our website, and you can find more out about our office and our program. And certainly, if you're in Colorado, we'd love the opportunity to, to work with you. Excellent. Well, I appreciate you sharing and being here today. Thank you, and have a great day. You too. It's my pleasure. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the page podcast. Our next episode will be posted in about two weeks. If you have any ideas about a future episode, please contact me at michaeldj at page. Have a great day and happy luring.